This is Perspectives on Justice. We look at the most current and controversial issues in the U.S. justice system. I'm your host, Judge Alexander Williams, Jr., and I invite you to join me in exploring how the scales of justice are balanced, criminally, socially, and ethically. You are listening to Perspectives on Justice. Welcome to Perspectives on Justice. Today, we are focusing on the eviction and foreclosure crisis that is sweeping our country and our region, due in part to the coronavirus pandemic. Many Americans' health and income have been affected by COVID-19. And in some states, governors have put a moratorium on evictions and foreclosures because residents are asked to stay home and only go out for essential needs. Many Americans who lost their job because of the virus have not been able to pay their rent or mortgage for months, falling behind in payments and facing eviction when the moratorium is lifted. The unemployment rate remains high as states begin to lift the moratorium on evictions and foreclosures. Many people will find themselves unable to provide shelter for themselves and their family. But research shows that evictions and foreclosures were already rising because of the lack of affordable housing in this country and in our region. Let's talk a bit about the underlying issue facing many people in our country. My guest is Flora Aberboo, National Director for State and Local Policy for Enterprise Community Partners. Enterprise Community Partners is a national nonprofit that addresses America's affordable housing crisis for every angle, combining 40 years of experience, thousands of partners, and the expertise of over 1,100 employees nationwide. Ms. Arabu, we are delighted to have you join us today on Perspectives on Justice. Thank you for having me. All right, Ms. Arabu, let's start uh, with looking at the issue of affordable housing in the United States prior to COVID-19. We simply don't have enough, particularly in metropolitan regions like the Washington area, enough housing. We look at New York, we look at Boston, and of course, uh, other areas where you have a densely populated area, but people are being priced out of the market. Can you walk our listeners through how we got here? Well, let me start by saying that this is a very, very difficult question. To truly understand how we got here, I think we would have to go back not just decades, but even centuries to talk about the ways in which this crisis is rooted in slavery, in Jim Crow, even some post-civil rights era policies. But having acknowledged that, I think where we can start is with some of the Reagan era policies of the 1980s. Those resulted, among other things, in massive cuts to housing programs. And those cuts really reversed a decades-long precedent of the federal government actually having a central role in housing, particularly after the Great Depression, after World War II. The federal government was one of the major 
developers of, of housing. And so with the cuts of the 1980s, um, it, it really created chronic homelessness as we know it today. And we never really covered recovered from that. In fact, uh, today, HUD funding is tens of billions of dollars lower than it was 30 years ago if you adjust for inflation. And so, uh, of course, there are many other factors, but then the 2008 crisis shows up and it highlights for us, I think, how complicated capitalism and economic forces can be in our country. And there are uh, two things that really stand out to me um, about the crisis. There, you know, a lot happened, but first, going into the crisis, investors were able to make a lot of money and make it very fast by investing in real estate, which, of course, happens all the time. But in this case, they were taking almost zero risk because they were selling off those mortgages. And there were no regulations in place to kind of prevent the fallout for the home buyers, um, particularly the ones that were targeted with predatory loans. And then in reaction to the crisis, you actually kind of saw the same thing. Investors were able to make a lot of money and make it fast by actually investing back into that disaster. And that kind of happened in the form of predatory acquisitions. So a lot of people really suffered on um, the process of foreclosure and investors were able to come in, buy those homes and hold them vacant for really long periods of time. And what this really gets at, I think, is a society that treats housing as a commodity rather than as a human right. Of course, uh, 2008 was 12 years ago. Are we still feeling the effects of that housing crisis of 2008? Yeah, definitely we are. Uh, when you look at the racial wealth gap, when you look at racial disparities in homeownership rates, uh, it's definitely still very present. Um, as a country, we had been making progress in closing the racial wealth gap and closing the homeownership gap. But actually, uh, racial inequities, or well, the homeownership gap is at its widest point since the early 1990s, and it just continues to widen. So those home those homeownership rates haven't recovered, um, and those foreclosures don't just impact homeowners. They impact entire communities. So you can look uh, at cities like Detroit. Um, that still have a huge vacancy and blight problem despite having demolished tens of thousands of homes. And in fact, last week we just saw Detroit pass a $250 million bond to further address blight and vacancy in the city. So yes, even 12 years later, um, there's a lot of work to be done to deal with the 2008 crisis. Wow, that's really something. Uh Sarah Boo, what do we mean by uh, being a house burden or rent burden? So the standard in the industry for what we refer to as affordability is paying no more than 30% of one's income towards rent or your mortgage. So in essence, if somebody is paying more than 30% of their income towards their housing expenses, they're considered rent burden. If a household is paying more than 50%, more than half of its income towards housing, then they are considered severely rent burden. And these are two measures that we in the industry monitor a lot nationwide about 
uh, about half of all renters, 40 plus million renters are cost burdened and one quarter of all renters, 25% are severely rent burdened. Um, and so you could see what a significant crisis this is. And as you know, it doesn't play out the same way for everyone. Uh, in this country, 55% of black renter households are cost burdened compared to example, 42% for white households. Now, when you talk about, uh, again, a rent uh, mortgage uh, burden, are we talking about uh, renters or first-time home buyers or seniors or students? Who, who, who's covered in this lack of affordable housing? I think with the affordable housing crisis, it's most commonly manifested as a crisis for renters, as rapidly escalating rents. Uh, with no end in sight. But where you have a shortage of affordable rental housing, you almost always have a shortage of affordable home ownership. And both are really important for a variety of reasons. Uh, but we're talking about everyone. So yes, seniors, the formerly homeless, low income wage earners, but we're also talking about the workforce. So there are plenty of people like teachers, firefighters, food service workers, all of whom are absolutely essential to the economy that have to be able to have access to affordable housing in order to keep a lot of these high-cost cities humming along. Um, but I would point out that the crisis is especially acute for the extremely low-income population, meaning uh, households that make 30% or less of area median income. And that's where we see uh, a really big pressure point, the greatest shortage of affordable housing in most places. And you mentioned, of course, uh, Detroit a minute ago, Ms. Arabu. Uh, of course, we also know that problems in Boston and Baltimore and Washington, D.C. And I, I guess our listeners will want to know what efforts are being made by uh, state and local governments to address this very uh, acute problem. You know, I've been working in affordable housing for a long time, and for a long time it was really difficult to put affordable housing on the radar of elected officials, but I'm really encouraged at how the conversation has been rising up over the last five years. For example, you hear governors now talking about affordable housing in their state of the state addresses. Uh, in fact, this summer, we had questions about affordable housing come up in two presidential debates. And so it's really a signal that this conversation that's been happening on the ground is definitely percolating, which is encouraging. I think state and local governments have been working very hard, particularly to put money into the problem. So for both the construction and preservation of affordable housing, we've seen all over the country the proliferation of trust funds, bonds, tax credits, but also a lot of policies that don't always require funding, although sometimes they do. So uh, eviction prevention, um, including right to counsel, fair housing laws, things like that. But it gets challenging because state and local governments have constitutional or legal requirements to balance their budgets. Really, only the federal government can print money. So 
it's been difficult for state and local governments to address the problem at scale. It really requires a partnership at the federal level. Uh, going back to uh, state and locals, are there any uh, particular states, maybe a couple of states that have uh, gone overboard with this and have really been sensitive to this issue? Yes, there absolutely have been. Uh, and we see this actually all over the country. I think there's more support for affordable housing than we think. So California has done a tremendous amount uh, to tackle the affordable housing crisis from a variety of angles. Of course, they have one of the worst affordable housing crises in the nation. But they've done a good job at, I think, uh, putting resources into it in, in terms of dollars, and they've had a lot of voter support to do so. I think that Colorado has been emerging as a leader around uh, eviction prevention and tenant protections, especially over the last two years, uh, advancing a lot of really cutting-edge policies, um, although the state still has um, has a long way to go, but there's a really robust advocacy community there. What we saw actually last week, though, was during the elections, uh, dozens of housing-related ballot measures that passed around the country, even in places where you wouldn't necessarily think there would be a lot of support. So Charlotte, North Carolina, Nebraska, places all over the country um, where voters came together and overwhelmingly approved new resources for affordable housing. That's great. Now, I know we just had uh, an election in this country. Uh, What's your prediction in terms of the federal government addressing this uh, lack of housing issue? This is going to be really challenging. Um, my hope would be that the administration and Congress could come to agreement on a federal stimulus bill. That would have to include, among other things, I think from the perspective of affordable housing advocates, uh, rental assistance to keep people stably housed through the pandemic and aid for state and local governments who are certain to face massive budget shortfalls in 2021 that could result in cuts to affordable housing programs. Uh, I do think that there is momentum for a stimulus deal. I My best guess is that we would not see anything before February, before the new president um, is in office. But I do think that aside from a stimulus bill, there is a lot that the incoming administration can do from a regulatory perspective, particularly around fair housing to kind of advance um, some of the policies that were uh, sort of unraveled under the previous or the current administration. And, and how has the COVID-19 uh, factored in this problem? COVID didn't change the affordable housing crisis. It just, in my opinion, shined a light on it. So for those of us in the affordable housing community, these are long-standing problems that we've been trying to make noise about and um, you know, put some focus on. And so it ends up being so pervasive, so closely felt at home that people start to talk about it. And I I think it makes Americans understand how fundamental housing is, not only when it's at risk, but when it's at risk during a time of a global pandemic. And so it's actually helping to um, send the message that we can't wait for 
a crisis to ensure that everyone has access to safe and affordable housing. Uh, my guest is uh, uh, Flora Arabu, who is the National Director for State and Local Policy for Enterprise Community Partners. Ms. Arabu, I want to ask you a couple more questions. Uh, we've heard about the uh, moratorium on evictions and foreclosures, and uh, what is that, and how long can we expect that to last? So the CDC did issue an order that created a moratorium on evictions, although this is not a blanket moratorium. It doesn't apply uh, to everyone. You have to qualify for it. Um, having said that, that protection also expires on December 31st. And so uh, come January 1st, um, there, you know, we're very concerned about what's going to happen. So, um, so come January 1st, those protections are no longer going to be in place. Having said that, I do think that there are some recourses for state and local governments to take, as well as judici judiciaries who can enact their own protections and their own eviction mor moratoria. Well, I was going to ask you about the... Uh upcoming winter, you just mentioned that the 31st of December is the expiration date. And uh, we would not want to see in, into wintertime all of these evictions and foreclosures, et cetera. Uh, what's your prediction? My prediction is that state and local governments are going to have to step in to uh, prevent uh, a, a wave of evictions. That certainly could happen, um, but I think that we learned, especially early on in the pandemic, uh, that the, the courts and governors and mayors can do a lot to keep people safe and keep them housed. The challenge is that the, a moratoria is not a long-term solution. An eviction moratorium is intended to be a short-term patch that buys government some time while they figure out how to channel resources into rental assistance, which is really the only long-term solution because the longer these moratoria go on, the longer uh, property owners are going to go without rent payments, and particularly for the small mom-and-pop landlords, um, they just don't sit on the kind of cash reserves that are needed to be able to make their own mortgage payments. All right, uh, Ms. Arabu, uh, we've just about come to the end of this portion of the interview, and I just ask whether you have any uh, recommendations to uh, federal, state, uh, local governments, or in citizens in making sure we uh, remain alert and that this problem is addressed. Any uh, recommendations you have? Yes, I would really encourage state and local governments to start thinking upstream, get back to basics, and invest in prevention. Although it's absolutely critical that we have good safety net systems in place that, you know, right to counsel for eviction cases and homeless response systems and so forth, it is far less expensive and far more effective to provide households with rental assistance or with other kinds of assistance or programs that keep them in their home in the first place. Uh, I think that there are also a lot of other policies and programs that uh, state and local governments can advance, including um, just educating tenants about their rights and then enforcing those rights once they're enacted. Um, and finally, I think that uh, 
first and foremost, as as the new administration comes in and the federal government sort of regroups to figure out what the next federal stimulus package is going to look like, we absolutely must have resources for rental assistance. That's that's where I see um, big opportunities. Wonderful. Uh, My guest is Flora Arabu. Uh, She, again, is the National Director for State and Local Policy for Enterprise Community Partners. Ms. Arabu, thank you so much for your enlightening comments. I do appreciate you being on this portion of the show. Thank you so much. We're taking a mid-show break right now, and I'm going to give you some facts which are very relevant to what we've been talking about. Fact number one. With the loss of 4 million affordable housing units over the last decade and a shortage of 7 million affordable apartments available to the lowest income renters, many renters entered the pandemic already facing housing instability and vulnerable to eviction. Fact number two, communities of color are disproportionately rent burdened and at risk of eviction. People of color are twice as likely to be renters and are disproportionately likely to be low income and rental cost burden. Studies from cities throughout the country have shown that people of color, particularly black and Latino people, constitute approximately 80% of people facing eviction. Researchers from the University of California at Berkeley and the University of Washington found that the number of evictions for black households in Baltimore exceeded those for white households by nearly 200%, with the black renter eviction rate outpacing the white renter eviction rate by 13%. Finally, fact number three, the United States may be facing the most severe housing crisis in its history. According to the latest analysis of weekly U.S. Census data, as federal, state, and local protections and resources expire, and in the absence of robust and swift intervention, an estimated 30 to 40 million people in America could be at risk of eviction in the next several months. Our next guest is Frank Demaray. Deputy Director of the Montgomery County Department of Housing and Community Affairs. Montgomery County, of course, is a local suburb of Washington, D.C., with a diverse racial and socioeconomic population. Uh, Mr. Demaray will tell us, but I believe Montgomery County is the largest uh, jurisdiction uh, in the state of Maryland with somewhere around a million people. Demaray, uh, thank you so much for joining us today on these important topics of affordable housing, evictions, and foreclosures. Thank you very much, uh, Judge Williams, and I really hope to bring a local government perspective, uh, information, and you know, local governments are the delivery vehicle for an awful lot of the assistance that uh, uh, people need, especially in the rental uh, emergency and rental eviction prevention. All right, thank you. Now, uh, we started our conversation with uh, Ms. Uh, Arabu of Enterprise Community Partners with a look at the issue of affordable housing pre and during COVID-19. 
Can you tell us what is Montgomery County, Maryland doing to address the affordable housing issue? As Ms. Arabu spoke about the pre-COVID underlying crisis, you know, we call the current environment a crisis, but you know, Montgomery County with about a million people, about 35% are rental households, so it's about 350,000 households. Uh, we've been tracking and aware and focused on you know, about 25 or 30,000 of these households are spending more than half their income. Uh, Ms. Arabu defined that as severely rent burdened. So as a community, uh, the focus and the effort has been to address the households that if you're spending more than half your income on housing, uh, you are not just housing insecure, you're now food insecure. Um, so we've been working to reduce that uh, with rental support on an ongoing basis and to increase the number of affordable units with development, you know, production and preservation of existing affordable housing. But as a county, we've been able to effectively hold our numbers about constant and not really been able to reduce them. Uh, just the investment that the county makes in rental assistance, about 25 million a year before the pandemic, and we've been spending uh, 40 billion or so in production and preservation and uh, holding, meaning not increasing the number of households severely rent burdened. When the pandemic hit, we saw the numbers you know, people that were behind on rent go from about 5% in surveys that we did early in the uh, pandemic. Uh, so February numbers were about 5%. By the time we hit May and June, we were looking at 15 to 17% of all of our households. So going uh, up to about 20,000 uh, of our 130,000 units of rental housing. So the, uh, the, impact on the households was rapid and severe. Um, so everything we're doing at the moment is focused on the uh, remedy and the um, addressing the current crisis. Um, but as you know, the focus that you've put on it, you know, this has to be an opportunity to see what we can do to come out of this you know, with a different understanding and with different structure uh, so that we can do better in you know, addressing things in advance. Let me ask you this, Mr. Uh, Demaray. Uh, as I, uh, I'm from Maryland, and obviously I know Montgomery County is uh, over a million uh, citizens or somewhere in that vicinity. Are we talking about a certain area of Montgomery County? It's a very diverse area. You have uh, northern uh, Montgomery County. You've got that uh, Silver Spring corridor near Washington, D.C., and then you have other uh, areas of the county that uh, are well to do, and of course, uh, Montgomery County Schools has always been considered the top of the country. So, where, where in the county do you have the focus of this uh, of a lack of affordable housing? Well, affordability is a problem across the county, depending on household income. Right, so housing cost burden is the rent you're paying relative to your income. Uh, we have about 17 percent of our total population. Uh, that are in the very lowest income quartile. Uh, the areas where we have the most, what we call naturally occurring affordable housing is along the uh, eastern side of the county, uh, the, along the uh, University Boulevard, Langley, Tacoma area where the Purple Line is going through. Uh, 
Uh, we document about 6,500 units of affordable housing uh, that the transit corridor is, is affecting. A fair amount of our housing up the Route 29 corridor, uh, where we're actually investing in additional transit uh, to assist. And then as you go out Route 270, uh, or you actually through the Wheaton area and then out uh, Gaithersburg, um, out the 270 corridor, we have a number of uh, affordable communities uh, where the median rent in the county is $1,750. Uh, and we do have a fair number of properties uh, with rents uh, below $1,500 a month uh, for one bedrooms. And, uh, but at the same time, that is a burden. Uh, we have, you know, if you earn $50,000 a year, which is $25 an hour, you are rent burdened trying to pay the median rent. Um, and we see a lot of our households earning between forty dollars and $50,000 spending more than half their income on rent. So it's a, it's a severe burden. Uh, First-time homebuyers actually have some opportunities where you can actually buy homes, you know, with $80,000 annual income. Not many. Uh, and the county is very large, 500 square miles, so it can be in different parts of the county. And then there are large parts of the county where the starting price is a million dollars uh, for a property. And so um, very diverse, but very large population of uh, housing burdened uh, households. And I'd ask you the same question I asked Ms. Uh, Arabu, and that is, uh, are we talking mostly of uh, renters or potential home buyers or seniors? Well, uh, our renter population is the most severely housing cost burdened, uh, and many of them who would like to be home buyers uh, are not able to get there. So, you know, down payment being a major bar uh, barrier, um, so monthly payments, uh, we're seeing you know, very low interest rates today, and that's why you know, the median home price in the county actually can be afforded with about 80000 of income uh, for household. But getting that down payment is an enormous barrier. So affordability to get into home ownership is a challenge uh, for a lot of our population, uh, but particularly you know, our lower income populations where we have an aging population. Uh, so our seniors are struggling, particularly as their income goes down with retirement. Um, and we have, uh, again, a very large working population. Montgomery County is a leader in promoting and uh, implementing minimum wage increases um, and we will be getting to $15 an hour next year. So two households earning $15 an hour, two wage, uh, minimum wage household, actually is $60,000 a year and can afford our median rent um, without being housing cost burdened. But it's still extremely difficult. Uh, we're speaking with Frank Gimmeray, who is the Deputy Director of the Montgomery County Department of Housing and Community Affairs. So, Gimmeray, uh, I want to, uh, as we wrap up here, I want to ask you something about the coronavirus, coronavirus uh, pandemic and what impact has that had on this issue of lack of affordable housing? Well, first thing it did is it had a major impact on incomes. Um, so we saw the unemployed numbers of persons in the county go from 16,000 at the beginning uh, to over 48,000. Uh, we're down to about 35,000 in the September numbers most recently released. Uh, but that's yeah, about 20,000 persons uh, who are now currently unemployed. Um, we believe our rental delinquency is over 20,000 households. 
Um, so we have a very large number of households who don't know how they're going to make the rent. Um, they are making rent at a, a much better rate than a lot of folks anticipated. So savings have been uh, spent uh, and there is a scramble to stay in their homes. Um, the county has been very focused. You know, our role is to deliver the federal aid uh, directly. So as participating in the, the major CARES Act uh, money that came through the state from the federal government, uh, we allocated this summer 20 million of the county's allocation to rental assistance. That's going to help about 5,000 households with a, up to $4,000 per household. Separately, we allocated another $5 million of federal and local money, and we uh, will be seeing uh, a little bit more of the currently appropriated federal money. But we expect that our total household served with some rental assistance will be well less than half of those that we understood in our surveys to be uh, delinquent and suffering. Um, you, anyone who's behind on rent one month uh, can have a a writ of eviction, uh, you know, judgment against them. Uh, Ms. Arabu spoke to the CDC federal order that was a moratorium on evictions. The governor of Maryland uh, on April 3rd uh, issued an executive order that suspended all evictions and foreclosures for anyone that could demonstrate income loss uh, from the COVID emergency. And it is a affirmative defense. Uh, you have to document it in court if you uh, sued for possession if the landlord is trying to evict you. So there is a protection that extends beyond the December 31 CDC order, but it only extends as long as the governor maintains a state of emergency. So we know that we're going to be in a state of emergency at least through the end of November. Uh, very little likelihood that the governor is going to change anything in December. And as long as the governor maintains a state of emergency, if you uh, are a tenant who has suffered income loss and your landlord is trying to evict you for a failure to pay rent, you do show up in court. And I'm mentioning this just to encourage anyone that knows anybody in the situation, it's important to show up in court, present a defense, um, and then that will be stayed until the end of the emergency. Um, but like the CDC order, the day after it's a, the emergency suspended, evictions can begin. So we have to, we're very focused on supporting and have uh, information and uh, legal assistance and tenant rights uh, organizations working with us. So, but it's a very challenging time for tens of thousands of uh, Montgomery County residents, and then you know, many, many tens of thousands across the state. We uh, we think we're in the uh, second surge. I heard some people say we're in the third surge. I don't know where we are, but uh, anything additional that the county council there in Montgomery County is doing to uh, address uh, some of the issues that may come up after the 31st of December. Yeah, so on the housing side, and we have a lot of efforts uh, on food and health and other efforts, but on the housing side, uh, Montgomery County imposed a rent increase limit. Uh, we have an annual number that's called the Voluntary Rent Guideline that has always been a voluntary suggested rent increase. The past year it was 2.6%, but in April, Montgomery County Council made it absolute that no rent increase of more than 2.6% uh, for the duration of the emergency plus 180 days after the emergency. Uh, we'll continue with funding uh, legal assistance. There is Maryland Legal Aid 
organization making uh, legal assistance available to anyone uh, that goes to court on landlord tenant uh, failure to pay rent and other uh, eviction actions. We have counseling organizations that we are supporting and funding to do one-on-one -on -one counseling. Uh, we believe it's critical for landlords and tenants to work together, uh, do payment plans, come up with some structures. So as a county, uh, we are going to continue to direct financial assistance where we can. Uh, we do have funds committed to avoiding homelessness. Uh, anyone who does end up uh, losing their property for whatever reason, uh, Montgomery County has a structure to try and ensure uh, that we maintain housing and shelter um, with uh, different levels of support depending on the circumstances. Um, but yeah, we get into the next year, the major federal funds from the first round will have been pretty much exhausted. Uh, we're hopeful uh, with everyone else uh, that the Congress will understand that they need to do uh, similar and, and expanded, particularly on the rental assistance. The landlords need to maintain their properties. The tenants need to be uh, protected uh, from you know, becoming unsheltered or having to double up or triple up in a time of uh, a severe health crisis. Our guest has been uh, Frank Demeray, the Deputy Director of the Montgomery County Department of Housing and Community Affairs. He's given us some good information about some of the legislative enactments that are taking place, as well as he mentioned what the governor is doing with the moratoriums. So, uh, Mr. Demeray, uh, thank you so much for joining us as a uh, wonderful guest here on this show. Thank you so much, sir. Uh, thank, thank you for helping us get the word out. Next up, I have with me attorney Kate Denny, a senior attorney at the D.C. Tenants Rights Center. The center is a small, mostly pro bono law firm committed to representing tenants in the District of Columbia who are having disputes with their landlords. Uh, now, attorney Kate uh, litigates a wide range of issues, including eviction defense, and rent control matters. Ms. Kate, uh, Ms. Denny, uh, thank you for joining with me today here on Perspectives on Justice. Thank you for having me. Now, now we've touched on the issue of affordable housing across the country as well as the housing needs of renters and home buyers in Montgomery County. So it's now time for us to talk about the District of Columbia. Can you walk us through the eviction process in the district? Sure. Um, so I guess if it's uh, an eviction for non-payment of rent, um, the landlord would be filing a case in the landlord-tenant court and then would be proceeding um, through a court process uh, all the way to once the judge issues a judgment for possession, uh, could proceed with an eviction with the U.S. Marshals. That whole process could take anywhere from a month to over a year, depending on whether the tenant has defenses that they raise and, and whether those um, defenses, such as housing code issues, get litigated. Uh, except, I guess, now during the, the pandemic, that whole timeline is, is very different. Now, the, the, the main reason landlords evict tenants is that uh, because they're not paying rent? In my experience, that is the most common. Uh, the other option is that a landlord would be seeking to evict a tenant for violating the terms of their lease, or there are a few other reasons, uh, such as uh, unlawful activity on the premises or something like that. 
And what type of uh, notice uh, requirements must uh, landlords give tenants? The landlords are required to give 30 days notice of violating a term of the tenancy under the lease for a breach of lease type of case. For non-payment of rent, they do not currently have to provide notice to the tenant. That could be changing. There's a law that is uh, potentially going to be enacted today if the mayor assigns it, and that would require the landlord to provide 30 days notice even for non-payment of rent cases. And then there are a few other types of cases uh, but I guess those are the main two. And so the most common is that the landlord would be required to give 30 days notice. Yeah, when I was uh, in law school, I remember uh, some of that notice was just tacking something on the uh, door. Do they still do that? Is that the notice? That is still the most common way. They're supposed to be uh, trying to serve the tenant in person, but the most common is that they end up relying on posting on the door. Sure. Uh, now, uh, Attorney Denny, um, I hear that a lot of tenants simply don't show up uh, for the hearing. What, what is the reason for that? That has been a big issue uh, in D.C. recently. There is a really interesting uh, article in the D.C.ist uh, with some very extensive reporting about how the... Uh, the process servers in D.C., many of them aren't actually serving the tenants with notice of their court proceeding. And so a lot of tenants aren't actually being provided lawful notice of their hearing. There are definitely a lot of others who are actually who have actually resolved their case with the landlord by the time the hearing happens. And so they've actually paid off their rent. And so then the landlords dismiss at the time at that first hearing date. And so then. It's, the tenants are, are not really expected to appear if they've actually paid rent in full. Yeah, I don't know if you've captured any uh, uh, data or anything, but uh, according to the Princeton University's eviction lab, landlords filed more than 27,000 eviction cases in 2016. And I uh, don't know whether you uh, have any idea as to how many or the amount of evictions that take place in the District of Columbia on a yearly basis any thoughts? I'm not sure. I, I mean, I, I'm, it's in the thousands. I'm not sure how sure. many thousands. So We yeah, know us a lot. Can't give you a very accurate range. Sorry sure. about that. And they have a pretty uh, active landlord and tenant uh, court that's uh, pretty busy, I suspect. Extremely, yes. Uh, let's ask another question. Uh, how does eviction affect a person's uh, housing stability in the long run? And uh, once they get that judgment in their background and so forth. Talk to us a little about how evictions uh, affect uh, uh, people. Sure. I guess I've, I've, you know, in speaking with individual tenants and individual clients, uh, I've had a lot of, of clients not be able to get new housing, even if they had any eviction filed against them, even if it didn't result um, in a judgment for eviction, they didn't actually get evicted, uh, but they just had the case filed and that still showed up in their tenant screening report and still prevented them from getting housing in the future. So it has a huge effect on, on tenants' ability to rent and to pass tenant screenings for future housing. So that is another law that's currently uh, pending with the um, in D.C. is it, it, that is 
potentially going to be passed or enacted today if the mayor signs it. There's a record sealing act. Um, it's called the, I guess, Fairness in Renting. Should get the actual name. <laughs> Fairness in Renting Emergency Amendment Act. If that gets signed, then there are some protections for tenants in both uh, tenant screening reports and then also in sealing their records for, for future rental applications, which would help them in other states as well. So I've had a few clients recently who've been trying to seal their records in DC because they're applying for housing in South Carolina and Florida and you know in other states that somehow these evictions still turn up even if they didn't result in an, in an actual judgment. Yeah, uh, Attorney uh, Denny, uh, I've heard a number of uh, landlords and other persons uh, talk about how liberal and progressive the District of Columbia is with reference to uh, landlord and tenant rights that give rights to more so, or they favor uh, tenants over landlords, and some people have complained about uh, that. Uh, is that uh, any truth to that, that uh, D.C. is a uh, landlord, excuse me, a tenant-friendly jurisdiction? The laws in effect in D.C. are fairly tenant-friendly. The, the limitations to that is that there are a ton of tenants who don't have attorneys and don't know the law, so that doesn't really help if they aren't able to use the law uh, in their favor and aren't able to advocate for themselves. And there are some, some serious deficiencies in our laws still that they do have in other states. So for example, if, if a landlord isn't, um, isn't properly maintaining the property, if there's no heat, if there's no water, there's no right to it for a tenant to just pay into an escrow account, for example, and that's true or that's available in many other states. So there are some things that tenants don't have and they don't have the right to an attorney still. So uh, it, it might be tenant friendly generally. I, I definitely see tenants st still very much on the, on the more vulnerable end, however. Uh, with the uh, pandemic now engulfing uh, all of us in the area, have you uh, noticed that tenants are paying more attention to their rights and uh, things uh, to that nature? I would like to think that a lot know some of the emergency protections that are available. There are a lot of resources out there. Uh, so the, the mayor's website, there's the Office of Attorney General that's all trying to get the word out there about tenant protections. And I think it's a huge range. So I talked to some people who uh, are really, you know, they've done their research. They know what their rights are. They know the emergency has certain effects on their rights as tenants. And then some people who are completely oblivious to that, and and those are the people that you really hope that we can reach out to, and that other tenant advocates can reach out to. Now we've uh, heard about a moratorium on uh, evictions and on foreclosures. Uh, uh, how does that factor in, and uh, what's your prediction as to uh, whether that's going to continue or or expire? Can't say what the the how long the mayor will extend the the. Uh, the state of emergency, and that also affects how long the eviction moratorium lasts under the current legislation. So if the uh, public health emergency continues to be extended past the end of this year, the, the way that the current legislation works is that the moratorium also is extended. I hope that that will be extended longer because there really isn't a plan in place to protect tenants and to really step in once the moratorium is lifted. And so it's starting to 
get down to the wire where it seems like at some point the, the moratorium will be lifted and there doesn't seem like there's going to be or there isn't a huge plan in place, it seems like, to, to protect those really vulnerable tenants who can't pay, pay back rent. So, Attorney Denny, what do you say to the uh, complaints uh, by uh, landlords and, and, and others about, uh, and in fact, uh, finance companies and mortgage companies that uh, are not getting uh, uh, money and, and, and income uh, because of this? Uh, how do you balance uh, their concerns with tenants' rights? Do you have any thoughts as to what uh, legislators and county council and city council people all over the country have to do when you have that uh, conflict. Right. I, I understand that there that that no one's really winning right now, and that uh, this also affects landlords as well. A lot of the landlords in the District of Columbia are, are large companies. A lot of them have been able to apply for public assistance, like PPP loans and other loans. And then individual owners, a lot of them have been able to apply for uh, mortgage uh, deferrals, which could extend the life of their, of their mortgages and so can give them some protections. Tenants really, while there's an eviction moratorium, there's nothing saying that they don't owe that rent in the future. So it's balancing kind of who, who's the most vulnerable and then um, also trying to make up for the fact that tenants aren't getting federal protections the same same way that a lot of the landlords are. And, uh, you know, one thing that would help everybody is if the government could step in and, and add more funds to uh, tenant uh, rental assistant programs and, and things like that. Just a couple more questions, uh, Attorney Denny. Uh, uh, what uh, advice would you give... Uh, tenants in the District of Columbia who are listing here and uh, who may have some concerns about uh, uh, not being able to afford their place or, or concern about evictions or whatever, any, any advice you should uh, give them? Sure. One thing is, is to see what works for them, if there is some ability to pay some amount to try and work out some sort of payment plan or arrangement with the landlord. Tenants have the right to a payment plan. Uh, in the district, and it's to pay back rent over of, over a 12-month span. That's not that helpful for a lot of people because not many people who couldn't pay their rent three months ago can suddenly pay their rent plus an additional amount of back rent now. So can't say that's necessarily helping a lot of people, but that is an option available. And then coming up with some agreement to pay some reduced amount of rent with the landlord is also always an option, and there's no harm in ever asking. One, uh, one resource that I thought was pretty useful is on the D.C. government website. There's the coronavirus.dc.gov slash rent. There's a list of different rental assistance and uh, tenant assistance programs on there that can provide some resources that might help uh, provide le uh, rental assistance for, te for tenants. Uh, final question. Uh, one goal of Perspectives on Justice is to help create change in the area of justice. And in pursuit of that goal, I, I try to ask each guest to share with us maybe one small step for justice that we can take to make a difference. Uh, do you have any uh, suggestions? The first thing that comes to mind is making sure that tenants have uh, 
full access to legal representation in, in court hearings. I think that seems like that would make the biggest difference for tenants in the District of Columbia. There are all sorts of things on my wish list for, for legislative changes that could help, help tenants, uh, but I think that, that seems like the one biggest, biggest one that I can think of right now. All right, uh, we've just listened to Kate Denny, a senior attorney at the DC Tenants Rights Center. Attorney Denny, thank you so much for joining us here on Perspectives on Justice. Thank you. Without a doubt, there is a real crisis involving lack of affordable housing, evictions, and foreclosures in the Washington metropolitan area, and I suspect also in other areas of the country. The pandemic and implications of COVID-19 have enlarged this crisis. Legislative enactments, moratoriums, and other programs to protect tenants' rights have been explored and have been implemented. We have heard from our experts, Flora Arabu, National Director for State and Local Policy Enterprise Community Partners, Frank Demeray, Deputy Director, Montgomery County Department of Housing and Community Affairs, and Attorney Kate Denny with the D.C. Tenants' Rights Center, all of whom have identified the critical issues and have presented solutions and proposals to address the challenges surrounding the housing crisis, evictions, and foreclosures. Let me conclude by urging all of us to stay abreast and reflect on these challenging issues of housing, evictions, and foreclosures, which have been lifted up today by our esteemed guests. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Perspectives on Justice. If you'd like to keep up to date with new episodes, be sure to go to wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe. I'm your host, Judge Alexander Williams, Jr. Until next time.